I would like to thank you as a church and thank Pastor Chassie for having me come and speak, for welcoming our church, those of us that were able to make it, to be able to come and be with you guys. Um, our friendship is kind of contingent on how the rest of uh, the story goes, uh, so I'll find that out and get back to you Tuesday. Um, so... Uh, also, if I were you guys, I know uh, Mr. Emery said that I pre I'm going to preach for two hours. That's not necessarily true, but Jeremiah tells me he's already prepared a, uh, a uh, after-preaching message uh, to give you guys some extra dosage if uh, I don't do a good enough job. So I'll be in Psalm 133 to start out tonight. Uh, for those of you who don't know me very well, I tend to use about a million verses when I preach. Um, I do encourage you guys to turn to each one that I reference, but you don't have to if you don't really... Uh, move as fast as I talk. I keep getting told by the people in my church I don't give them enough time to turn to the different passages. I move through so many so quickly. Um, but I will be in Psalm 33, starting verse 1. Uh, Psalm 133, verse 1. Um, here David says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, um, I have five siblings, I have four of which are brothers, um, and my sister was by no means an exception to how difficult unity can be amongst the brethren. Um, and uh, a lot of the people in this room know all six of us, and uh, I don't know, I, I'm, I've been enough of a pain in the, in the butt of my parents and my siblings, so I'm not, I'm not innocent of this. Uh, but my dad keeps uh, expressing this sentiment, how good and how pleasant it would be if the brethren would just dwell together in unity. Um, but many Christians, they spend their time, and I've heard this a lot, they're like, they don't want to go to that church because it's, it's filled with imperfect people, which we all are imperfect. Every church right. is filled with imperfect people. Um, but many Christians want to spend their time or wishing that they could go to a church uh, that had more unity or was better at um, working together than, it, than theirs currently is or some church that was a bit more pleasant in some regard. But I've also noticed there's a lot of infighting and division amongst the church. And so a question that I have is, why is unity usually in a church when bad stuff happens, unity is the first thing to go? And uh, it's a question that I, I struggle with a lot. Uh, to me, unity is a very, very important thing. That doesn't mean that I'm perfect with my brothers. We get into fights all the time. Uh, what's that phrase? Familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, we're, we're experts at that phrase. But um, when it comes to Christian living, there are two halves of a coin uh, that Christians must value in order to have unity in the church. The first side of that coin is that we have to value love. And that seems like a very simple statement. Everybody in the church is so used to hearing, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart. I've recently, in order to help better prepare myself for future ministry, I've started studying biblical Hebrew, of which I have started studying the, uh, the Hebrew concept of what they call the Shema. It is the first thing they teach their children. It is a prayer, and it's in Deuteronomy 6. It says, The Lord thy God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy strength and all thy mind. That is the first thing they teach children. And as Christians, I remember growing up in Sunday school, and that was one of the first things I learned too. And it's my dad's rule number one. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. But when it comes to the concept of unity, love is one of the first things to go in the church, First John chapter three verse sixteen uh, demonstrates the love of Christ, and I do mean First John three sixteen, not John three sixteen, although that is a very similar verse. And uh, 
1 John 3.16 demonstrates the love of Christ. It says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so God himself, through his, who, through his disciple John, has called us to such a state of love that we're meant to lay down our lives for one another. Jesus said, A greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And of course, John 3.16, not 1 John 3.16, John 3.16 is, is that example passage, the proof that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him uh, should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we as Christian brothers, we're not meant to ignore the concept of love. We're meant to engage in it. We're meant to follow that example of Christ, even if it means not only dying to self, but literally, you know, literally and figuratively taking a bullet for one another. Uh, would I take a bullet for my brothers? Yeah, probably. Would I also use them as a shield? Yeah, probably. Um, but it really depends on circumstances. But I would, there, there is very little when it comes to you know, sacrificing of myself that I wouldn't do for my brothers should the need arise. Uh, and if they, if they doubt that, then we'll speak afterwards. Um, the second thing I want to point out, as far as the value of love, is the love of liberty. And I don't mean that we should love liberty, but liberty gives us the capability to love. Galatians 5.13, um, and if you guys haven't caught on, I will be going through a lot of verses. Uh, Galatians 5.13 talks about this, and uh, I'm sure that it's a very familiar passage. Um, my Bible seems to notice that it's a familiar passage because this is the section of my Bible that falls apart most frequently. Galatians 5.13 says, For brethren... Ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So in the church we have this concept. It's called Christian liberty. Uh, Romans 14 talks about it a lot. It's a very explanatory passage. If you know what Christian liberty is, it means that under the rules of Christ, there are certain things that we are free to do. Does that mean we have to do them? No. Does that mean that we can choose not to do them? Yes. In relation to eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, that's the most commonly used example. As Christians, we're free to eat of that. But there will be some weaker Christians who will be offended by that. Their Christian walk will suffer if you do that in front of them. And so that liberty is meant to be restrained. We're supposed to restrain our own liberty to be able to serve one another. And that's why this passage is so important. It says, by love, serve one another. The love of liberty is supposed to um, – the fact that we have Christian liberty is supposed to push us into loving one another and serving one another out of a direct result of that love. And if I haven't said love enough, then uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to keep saying it. But love is meant to result in service, sacrificial service to one another. And it's not the kind of love that leads to politeness. Uh, there are several different concepts of love um, in Greek. As if you haven't, uh, Pastor Chassie hasn't talked about the four terms of love in Greek enough, then uh, there are four different kinds. Each one has a different intensity. And, of course, the one that Christ uses, tells us to use is the Greek word agape. It means a completely self-sacrificing love, a selfless love, the kind of love that God has for us. And not the kind that just results in politeness. If you say, I love the people in my church, and you only ever say hi and bye and, you know, good to see you, you shake their hand or whatever, and that's all the more you deal with them, that's not the kind of love that, that uh, God is getting at here through his word. This is the kind of love, the self-sacrificial love that results in scrubbing toilets or washing windows or uh, cooking cookies, if anybody wants a hint. Um, and uh, 
it's that kind of self-sacrificial love that results in stories that I've heard of pastors. They, they go door to door, and they're witnessing to people. And I've heard of one pastor. He went to somebody's door. He knocked, and they didn't answer. He just kind of looked around, noticed the guy was digging post holes in his backyard. He wanted to witness to the guy. The guy said he was busy. The pastor showed up 30 minutes later, later in jeans and work boots with a post hole digger and started helping the guy dig post holes. That's the kind of self-sacrificial love that Christ wants us to have for one another, the kind that would... Do whatever it takes and do whatever is needed to give service to the brethren. Another kind of love is the love of the brethren. 1 Peter chapter 3, um, which there's a lot in 1 Peter about um, the brotherhood, but 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 uh, is a very good verse for this. Peter says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren be pitiful be courteous so he says to love as brethren now there's only really one word used in the in the new testament for brethren it's the word adolphos and it's the word you know it's biological brethren uh metaphysical brethren christian brethren it's all the same concept we're supposed to as christians as brothers in christ we're supposed to relate to one another as ideally as my dad wants me to relate to my brothers with peace and harmony and unity we're supposed to have that kind of love for one another. We were not raised in the same family. We do not have the, the family is everything kind of bond that a lot of people have. As you do everything for your blood because they're blood, as my grandfather would say. We're supposed to have that exact same mind, that exact same kind of, I'll do anything for you because you're my family love, just because we're a part of the same family. The biblical concept of salvation, the doctrine of salvation states that we all are given the adoption of sons. We're brought into the family of Christ. We are made a part of God's heavenly family. It's a worldwide universal body. And if you ever have the opportunity to travel to another state, a different country, you know, wherever it may be, and you go to another church of like-minded believers, in my experience, most of the time, I'm welcomed as a part of the family, not as a stranger. And that's a very important thing. If we don't have that love as brethren, where every Christian who walks through the door is seen as family, then that's not the right kind of love. We're supposed to be of one group, one mind, one people, basically as one blood through the blood of Christ. And that is the side of the coin that's the value of love. And it's important to remember this, these concepts when you're talking about unity because as soon as love goes out the window, everything else goes out the window. You stop tolerating people. Peter said love covers a multitude of sins. You know, when somebody does something that annoys you, the fact that you love that person will make you ignore that feeling or make you think of it in a different light. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe you did something to tick them off first. You know, whatever it may be, you loving somebody helps you deal with their imperfectness. And if they love you, it'll help them deal with your imperfectness. I need to say that as well because nobody's perfect. But the other side of that coin is that we need to value the mind of Christ. Now, everyone in my church is probably tired of me bringing up Romans chapter 12, but I love the passage. So Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Um, I highly recommend to everybody in this church, study Romans 12 in depth. I, I did a series in our church a while back on uh, the challenges that are in Romans 12. There are very, a lot of them. I can't remember the exact number. I think it's over 30 separate challenges located in Romans 12. And uh, if you're looking to improve your Christian walk, your, um, your devotions in the morning and stuff like that, I highly recommend just studying through Romans 12. But Romans 12, 16 says, Be of the same mind, one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. And I want to I point something out. The word condescend isn't the modern 
version of condescend. You're not supposed to be condescending towards other people, but you're supposed to essentially lower yourself to their position. You're supposed to relate to them how they would want to be related to how they would understand. It's like trying to explain things to children. And I don't mean that in a negative way. When you're dealing with your fellow brothers in Christ, when you're at church and you're dealing with people, you're supposed to say, okay, so I know that I have gone through five years of Bible school. I might want to strike up a conversation with somebody on a specific doctrine. And, you know, I've had various classes on this doctrine. I can't just automatically assume that every single, like James, have you had training in doctrine? No? Okay. So I need to be able to talk to James here in a way that he's going to understand. That doesn't mean I'm talking down to him. It doesn't mean I'm being mean. It means that I'm relating to him on a level that he's going to want to be related to, right? That's how we're supposed to be one toward another. And that's part of the mind of Christ. It says, be of the same mind one toward another. And that is a very difficult challenge. When you try to think the way another person thinks, it's hard. But if we all as Christians think the way Christ thinks, it makes it, a significant, it, makes it significantly easier. Um, and that is the mind that we're supposed to have. And Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, it should be a fairly familiar passage. Um, but this is the passage that talks about the mind of sacrifice. And a lot of people would know it, uh, at least in the uh, Bible college realms, we know it as the kenosis passage. It's the passage where Jesus empties himself of his rights, not of his abilities, not of his, um, not of his godhood. He was 100% God, 100% man. But he empties himself as his, of his rights. He did not claim the rights of a deity in order for us to have the gift of salvation. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5 say, if there, there, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." So this passage, there's a lot that I could, I could pull out of this, and I'll try to keep it uh, condensed. But we're meant to look at each other and have the thoughts of Christ. Christ went to the cross, and when I, it's not, this is, what I'm about to say is not exactly scriptural, but I'm sure that it's true because this is Christ's character. Imagine being the soldier, the Roman soldier, driving a nail into Jesus' hand and looking into Jesus' eyes. Something I think about not as frequently as I should, and yet more frequently than what my, some people might consider normal. But... What, would you, what do you think, what do you honestly believe Jesus' thoughts were watching that soldier drive the nail into his hand? Because I guarantee you it was, I love you anyway. You need to do this because it's the only chance you have. Because Jesus' words were, forgive them for they know not what they do. So we're meant to look at each other with those thoughts. And the question becomes, would you humble yourself for your brother? Would you die for him? Would you lift him above yourself? As a child, I got really confused about this statement. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And I got confused with the commandment not to covet your neighbor's stuff. So I'm like, how does that work? That seems like a contradiction. But, you know, what is being gotten at here is you're supposed to not just look out for your own stuff. You're not supposed to say, it's none of my never mind. I don't care. It's not in my purview. It's not my stuff. I don't care. My neighbor's house is burning down. I just hope it doesn't catch my house on fire. That's not what it's talking about. It's ta you're supposed to divert your attention to looking out for your neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself. I care about my stuff, 
And I'm sure my neighbor cares about his stuff, so if I see something wrong, I should try to take care of it. I should try to help him out with that. Whatever it may be, that is the mind of Christ. Another thing that I want to get at, Romans 15, verse 6, the mind of glory. Having the mind of Christ should push us in the direction of glory. Not self-glory, but glorification of Christ. Romans 15, verse 6. That ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one mind and one mouth glorify God. Our job on this earth, and I've, I, I can't say it enough, I'm sure a lot of people are probably tired of me saying it. We have a doxological purpose. That means that our whole purpose on this earth is to bring glory and praise to God. God does not need us. He really honestly doesn't. Our purpose of being on this earth is not to get saved. If, we, if that was our purpose, as soon as we get saved, we're gone. God would rapture us out of here. He'd kill us on the spot, whatever it may be. If that was our sole purpose, as soon as we accomplish that purpose, we're done. If our whole purpose was to just build churches, there wouldn't be a whole lot of point to that. If, even if our purpose is to lead people to Christ, what's the end purpose of that? Our end purpose, our sole purpose, is to glorify God in everything that we do. The Great Commission is just the primary way of doing that, by spreading the gospel throughout the world and teaching all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's how we do glorify God, by obeying his commands, but... How are we supposed to do that if we don't share the same mind? I mean, I was never in the military, but I know there's at least two guys in this room that were Marines. And as I've been told by many people, when you're in stressful situations, when you're being trained, or when you're in whatever it may, may be, a live combat, you don't have a, a unified system. If you're not working together, if you don't have a single function, a single goal in mind, there's no chance at success. I'm much more inclined towards the state of ministry. I don't know a lot about military combat or anything like that. I don't know a lot about a large variety of jobs. But I can tell you this, when it comes to ministry, which every Christian should have a ministry mind, maybe it might not be their sole focus, but we should all be geared towards that because that's the Great Commission, right? When we're geared towards ministry... If we do not all think our purpose as a church is to bring God's light into the world, no light will be shared. Yes, little, little bits of light from the few people who do try their best to bring light into the world, those will shine. But it's essentially the same concept. If you guys have ever seen a lighthouse light, like in person, it's essentially a gigantic light bulb inside of a, like a mirror frame or whatever. Imagine coating the entire thing in black paper and then poking a few little holes in it and then saying, that's a lighthouse, it's good enough. That's exactly what churches do because we don't share the same mind. We don't have the same purpose, the same goal. And I'm not talking about the gifts. Yes, God gave some preachers and some evangelists and some teachers and some, um, some for prayer and some for giving and stuff like that. We all have our different gifts and that's a whole other sermon topic. Um, but aside from that, it's all supposed to work together for the purpose of spreading the gospel throughout the world for glorifying God. We have that one mind, the mind of glory. And so if we don't think like Christ, we won't have the same mind. We can't, we can't glorify God together and honor him as a unit. And that's like the key word. 
how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. If we can't dwell as a unit, as one whole, a cohesive body, fitly joined together for the work of the master, we're not going to be able to accomplish anything. And so our minds should all be focused together on the commission. We should all be focused on accomplishing that mission of spreading the gospel throughout the world. Some of us, like myself, we go to foreign countries. And believe me, I wish I could stay. I don't know why. It's Maine. But, excuse me, um, nothing against Maine. It's just really, really cold. Uh, but we go to foreign fields. We try to help others. We try to bring God's word wherever it may go. But then there are those like Pastor Jeremiah here. He's from here. This is where he is. This is where God has placed him be a local part of the body and so without that unified purpose what are we doing that's a really important question and so again if you don't have the first side of the coin love you lose the unity and if you don't have the second side of the coin of having the mind of Christ you lose unity if you don't have the ability to love your brethren when they take you off or annoy you, or aren't pulling their weight, and you don't have the ability to even work together as a cohesive whole because you don't have the same mind, what are you even doing in church? Because as much as I like preaching, and as much as Jeremiah is right, we're here to listen to preaching. Preaching of the word of God is incredibly important. It's the primary thing that should take place inside of a church. If you were to get rid of everything except for one thing, preaching is the thing that should remain. Preaching itself is not the Great Commission if we're not preaching it to the lost world. That is the goal. We're not supposed to come to church to get preached at. We're supposed to come to church to get preached at so we can change, so we can better serve God in that ministry. And so we may live in a culture that's full of division. And trust me, <laughs> I'm getting really tired of the division that's in our culture and all the wars that are going on. But that doesn't mean that we're incapable of changing it. And I don't think that we should set out to change our nation. That would be great, but that should not be our first thought. Our first thought shouldn't even be to change our church, but ourselves. We should change who we are in relation to God. First and foremost. Because if you change how you think and how you feel, if you relate yourself more to God, if you follow his commandments more frequently, um, and if you really need a guilt trip, read Psalm 119 uh, in its entirety, and you'll get a pretty good guilt trip. But um, if you learn to love first and follow the mind of Christ the best you can, things will begin to change. They might only change in your life. But that's the first step. If you can't make yourself change, you can't change anything else because you can't change anything else. Only you can change yourself and only God can take care of everything else. The concept of unity only works in the church if we die to self and love like Christ and we think like him too. So if you find yourself wanting to be one with your church, it's important to ask yourself, what can I do to change me? And so I say to my family, to my church so frequently, when I get up behind a pulpit, I'm almost certainly preaching to myself. Do not feel targeted because I'm the target. Most often, that seems to be the case. When I do my personal devotions, I might not be after something specific, but I can guarantee you I'm specifically after change. And so what can I do to change who I am? What can I do to serve God more? What can I do to be more loving? What can I do to establish unity and to be one with the body of Christ? There are a lot of things that you could probably do, and for each person it's different, but a couple of things are just trying to be more loving, more thoughtful, more courteous, 
as uh, Peter said. But if you change yourself first and try to be the best Christian you can, you'll find that things just get better. I'm not, promise, I'm not preaching some sort of prosperity gospel. I'm not preaching health and wealth uh, for all followers of Christ. Uh, in fact, I believe kind of the opposite. I'm kind of surprised at the fortune that God has given us here in America. But I do think that the closer you grow to Christ, the less things tend to bother you. As I said before when I was giving my, my praise, the knowledge of how it ends, the knowledge that you're doing what is right, benefits you personally more than it will benefit anybody else. And so following God, following Christ, trying to be one with him is how you become one with the brethren, the true brethren. And I could get into a whole discussion. My, my family knows this. I can get into a whole discussion on what, what the brethren and the disciples and the followers of Christ, I can get into it. I could preach another 40 minutes on just that topic alone. But if we don't try to have unity with Christ, we can't have unity one with another. So we need to be able to love like Christ and we need to be able to think like him. And the only way to do that is to be like him, to be closer to him, to love him and pursue him daily. That's why I love the example of David, not David, Daniel, excuse me. Daniel was under persecution. He knew what the law had been changed to, and yet he goes, he says, you know what, my pattern is to pray three times a day in the eyes of God, not hidden, but publicly to pray in the eyes of God because that is what, how I become close to him. And so he didn't fear man's approach. He didn't fear the consequences. He chose to grow closer to God. And I have to say, if I went through what Daniel went through that night, I'm pretty sure that I would never uh, feel closer to him than he did that night. But um, that is how we must be. So if you want unity in your church, if you want unity in your circles, if you want to feel like God looks at what you do and say how good and pleasant it is because the brethren are dwelling together in unity, then you need to first be unified with Christ and let him unify the body. If all of us were to be as close to God as we possibly can, we'd all be a lot closer one to another. And a good, a good illustration of this, and I'm going to try not to get into a whole other sermon here, is um, a lot of people say, if you imagine a triangle, God's at the top, a husband's at one end of the base, and a wife's at the other end. The closer they both get to God, the closer they get to each other. That's something I've tried to adopt very closely in my life because, yes, it's easy to say, I'd like to be closer to this person, but if that person's farther away from God, then getting closer to them will drag you farther away from God. But if you get closer to God and they get closer to God, you'll be closer together. And that is what unity is. That is, how, that is what God sees as good and pleasant. Now, I don't really uh, have anything exactly planned for a closing or an invitation or anything. I thought you would just handle that at your church. But if you also want to preach, I'm good with that too. So. <laughs>